Good evening. It is good to see each of you, and if you're visiting with us, uh, we welcome you again. It encourages us that you're here. If you would be, open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the Pew Bible, that's 1,088, and we'll be studying through as we continue looking at readings that we're participating in, our daily readings right now as we read through the Bible in the year and our New Testament passages. We're reading through the book of Revelation, and so we'll pull out some highlights and learn seven lessons from the seven churches of Asia. And of course, that is a deep study that we could literally spend uh, seven weeks and not even hardly get beyond the hem of the garment in that. But we'll give it a best shot of, of learning at least some things about each of the seven churches of Asia. We are appreciative to the Moles and to the Good Pastor School. Uh, many hundreds of pounds of food have been donated to our pantry and they hauled that in this afternoon and, and spent a good bit of time and energy doing that and that is such a blessing. We serve so many families on a daily basis uh, in the life of this congregation through our food pantry and we appreciate that generous gift and that hard effort, that hard work and great effort that was made there. We appreciate the wonderful, wonderful Widow's Luncheon. It's always so enjoyable, widows and widowers. Uh, what a delight and the Buchanan's uh, prepared that meal and served it and it was so delicious and we appreciate that this afternoon and also just reminiscing of last Sunday evening to have our young men uh, leading in the worship service. What a blessing that was. A time of worship is always a wonderful, wonderful blessing, but when we're led by the young men, it just seems to be an extra amount of encouragement to us, and we appreciate all of our young people, our young men and our young women, and all that they do in serving God. Uh, when I walked through the building before, shortly before service was starting this evening, walking down a couple of halls, I walked past four different meetings. So many of you are doing so much and working so hard, and let's all just find our place. Uh, let's find where God gives us the opportunity to use the abilities that God has given us to be a part of His work. It's exciting to think about stateside where really all year long we'll be placing a strong emphasis on what can we do to reach this community. But think of our stateside mission trip that's been such a huge success for 10 years now. And to think of bringing that home, that is really, really exciting. We appreciate uh, JP and the work that has been done already in this and no doubt so many that will be involved in such a magnificent way and to give God all the glory. Uh, we are so humbled and privileged to just be a part of God's kingdom and let's do all we can for His sake. Isn't perception interesting? You know, it's one of the most interesting studies to me because it's always so consistent is anytime they study congregations to see friendliness. They'll ask the congregation to rate how friendly you believe you are. And almost every congregation rates themselves as being extremely friendly. But then when they ask the visitors of that congregation to rate how friendly that congregation is, it's usually a pretty wide gap where the visitors do not think that that congregation is nearly as friendly as the members themselves. Now, that's a lesson for all of us to learn and be aware of. That's not really what the lesson's on tonight. I'm using that as an illustration to say, isn't it amazing how sometimes our perception is not reality? You know, if, if our visitors don't think we're friendly, the reality is we're probably not very friendly, but yet our perception can be, oh, we're really, really friendly. Now, I use that as a launching pad to think about that principle there and then think about the seven churches of Asia. You know, a lot of time, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you think about reading the red letters of Jesus Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
But it's pretty awesome to open up that red letter Bible into the book of Revelation and see that John is not just writing by holy inspiration some words, which if he was, that, was a, that would be enough said. But it's just interesting to note that he literally is writing the words of Jesus Christ as Jesus says, I have a letter that I want you to give to each of the seven churches of Asia. And he gives a different letter to each of the churches. And I just wonder how many of those churches read the letter that was written to them, back to that perception, and to think, oh, he can't be talking about us. Surely we're not that way. And that just leads me to ask myself, and you ask yourself, what would Jesus say if he were writing a church, a letter to the church at Mount Juliet? Do you think you and I would be shocked at, at what Jesus said that he's thankful that we're doing? Do you think we'd be surprised at what he would say, hey, you really need to work on this. This is out of sorts. It's out of kilter. You need to make some amends. You need to repent. You need to change in this area. Of the seven churches of Asia, there were only two that he did not have things that he said that they must repent of. Friends, surely none of us here would say that we're a congregation that has everything together. We don't have anything to work on. Surely all of us would realize that if Jesus were to write a letter to us, more than likely he would say, I love the way you do these things, but hey, work on these a little bit more diligently. I don't know exactly what Jesus would say. It's caused me to think this week, studying for this lesson. I hope you'll give it some thought, and let's be honest as we evaluate and examine ourselves. But maybe if we study what he says to those seven churches... Maybe it would help us to better understand what Jesus might say to us. Because we're tying this in with our reading, I want to take the time at the beginning of this to spend about five minutes or so to show you the text itself and how it's laid out. And if we were going to spend seven weeks on it, these are seven things that we would note of each of the seven churches. We can only do this with the church of Ephesus for time's sake tonight. But on this slide here, you see that each of these letters share seven common things. There's a minor exception, and you'll note that in just a moment. But it's interesting that the seven churches, you know, Revelation, the, the numbers are so important. A perfect number seven has, each of the seven churches has seven things that said. And, and each time, each one is given a salutation or greeting. Second, each time Jesus identifies himself and he uses a different description of himself to each of the seven churches. Number three, he gives condemnation to the churches and... Uh, well, first, let me say commendation, compliments, but then he gives com condemnation except to two of the churches. And then to those that he does offer condemnation, he gives a warning or a threat. Hey, if you don't do this, and then he gives an exhortation. Every time the exhortation is, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And then in seven, uh, the seventh one, he gives a promise. Now, it's interesting that the promise always points to the other side. In other words, if you'll get these things right on earth, look what I'll offer you for eternity. And he offers a different description of what heaven will look like also. Uh, you may remember, and of course, if you don't, I can fully understand that. But many years ago, I, I preached a sermon to you about I want to go home. And we pulled out the seven promises that he made about heaven. 
And, and it's just interesting to study the topic of heaven, looking at the seven promises that God made. How does this look? If you have your Bible open, we're going to be in the second chapter of Ephesians. If you don't, it'll be there on the screen. Or if you want to open your pew Bible, 1,088. Notice how this looks as we look at these seven things in the church of Ephesus. And then after this, we can't spend as much time in each of the churches. We're just going to pick out one thing about each of the churches after this. But notice how this layout here, if, if you're reading through and you want to uh, appreciate the breakdown of these seven areas, you see as we begin reading Revelation 2 and 1, the salutation. He says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things, says, and now what we're about to read is the description that Jesus gives himself. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now he gives his commendation. Here's what he appreciates about them. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and have, you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. But now notice the condemnation that he has. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Here's the warning. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the first works, or here's the threat that goes with the warning, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now notice this exhortation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here's the promise toward heaven. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now friends, those seven areas you can take, and as we mentioned, except for the two churches that he didn't have anything negative to say about them, without exception, you can take each of these seven churches if you wanted to just make a little chart for yourself and you could see what he says to each one of these churches within these seven areas. And it's a wonderful and a powerful study. But tonight as we think about we simply want to pull one lesson out of each of the churches and think from this then what would the Lord say to us. And, and not that we'll summarize that tonight, but each of us can take that and, and try to figure out what is it that the Lord would say, I'm thankful, Mount Juliet, the way you do this. But also, Mount Juliet, I, I want you to think about this and work on this. It's interesting to me that when we see the church of Ephesus as we have just read over you see there again, as you look to verse 2, 3, and 4 there in the second chapter, you see that he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you can't bear those who are evil. Notice the works is what we probably would call ministries. He says, I know the many ministries you have, and I know the labor. In other words, I know the man hours that has to go into making all of these ministries possible. And he says, I know your patience. I know, in other words, endurance. I know the way you're able to do that day in and day out. You've been able to do it. And you remember, when we look back in the book of Acts, we see a wonderful conversion story with the church of Ephesus. Remember, they were so much on fire that they took the books that had to do with witchcraft and they burned the books. Remember, they had to fight against the, the uh, temple of Diana and, and make their stand against that. And, oh, there's just so much to the church of Ephesus. We have the book of Ephesians that is written to a healthy church. But yet now we come toward the end of the first century, and what do we have here? We have him saying, wait a minute, I have something, a problem with you. You still have all of these works going. You're putting in the man hours. The ministries are going well, but you've lost your first love. 
that first and greatest love. What is that first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love Him because He first loved us. Friends, I need to ask myself tonight, could it be possible that we're very busy in work, but yet we've lost the motive of our love for God while we're doing that work? You know, I can give you a personal illustration, and you've got to figure out how it applies to your life. But you know, I wake up in the morning, and it doesn't matter what kind of week it is. It doesn't matter what holidays. It doesn't matter what happens during the week. You know where I'll be next Sunday morning? I'll be standing right here, and I'll need a Sunday morning sermon, a Sunday night sermon. I'll need a Sunday morning Bible class and a Wednesday night Bible class. And then all the other activities that take place. You know what I have to constantly remind myself? My life is not about deadlines. My life in ministry is about serving God. And if I ever lose sight of Jesus Christ, what does it matter if I stand in the pulpit and preach a message that fills 30 minutes of time? What does it matter if I fill a class period but I've lost the love for Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 13 says that if I've done that, my work is worth nothing. And here's a great church that's so busy. And the, and the Lord is not saying that's negative. He's all for their ministries. He's all for their labor. He's all for the endurance that, he ha- that they have. But He's saying, come back to the right motive. Do it for the right reason. I want to challenge all of us Bible class teachers. Don't walk in a class Wednesday night because we have to. Walk in a class Wednesday night to teach because we love Jesus. I want to challenge you if you're delivering meals on wheels this week. Deliver those meals because you love Jesus. Whatever ability, whatever gift God has given you, you find your way to do that and to fulfill that because you love the Lord. As we think about a summary to this, let's summarize this first one with this. Great love can die in the midst of ministry. Isn't that sobering? The great love that maybe we one time had for the Lord, it can literally die while we're still just as busy as we can be in ministry. Let's look at the second church, and if you'll notice, we're only going to read verse 10. It is the church of Smyrna. We're in the second chapter, and notice what he says to them. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and that you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. When somebody tells you, oh, don't be afraid, don't you expect them to be saying, this isn't going to hurt? You know, like when the dentist says, open up, don't be afraid. You know, if, if all of a sudden you do that and he gives you a crushing blow, you'd probably be like, wait a minute, why did you tell me to not be afraid? Do you realize that what Jesus is saying here kind of goes against our logic? Do you realize Jesus said in the verse we just read, he said, don't be afraid, but you're going to suffer. You're going to be thrown into jail. And some of you will suffer until the very point of your death. 
Now, does that make sense to you? Why did he say, do not be afraid? Do you remember over there in Matthew the 10th chapter and verse 28? I want to read that quickly for you. Matthew the 10th chapter and 28 where Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, we must become aware of what we are afraid of. What gives you courage? Where do you exemplify your courage? Friends, if I understand the new covenant right, Jesus has taught us over and over and over that when we say, or when He says, do not fear, He is not saying, you will not suffer. He's saying, make sure that you never suffer the loss of your soul. Be willing to suffer everything else. Be willing to give up everything else. Right now, if you had to make a decision for your children, sometimes when we think about for other people, it makes us have more sober thoughts. If you had to make a decision for your children that they would die physically at this moment or that they would die spiritually, which one would you decide? Which one are you the most afraid of? Right now, if you had to die physically or to die spiritually and continue living physically, Which one are you the most afraid of? Please don't hesitate. That should be our prayer, is that we would never outlive our faith to God. That we would always be willing to suffer whatever must be suffered in order for our soul to be right with God. And so we summarize from the church of Smyrna. When the Lord says, do not fear... It does not mean you will not suffer physically. But then we go to the church, if you will, beginning in the 12th verse here in Revelation, the second chapter of Pergamos. And we're only going to read verse 13 and 14. And notice what he says here. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days of which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. And he mentions in 15 even those of the doctrine of Nicolaitans. Now, as we consider this, notice we have a sharp contrast in 13 and 14. In 13, he describes Antipas and perhaps one of the greatest compliments that could ever be given to anyone. He says, Jesus is saying, my faithful martyr. What a compliment. When Jesus can say, oh, this this brother, this sister, they belong to me. My, my faithful martyr. My faithful martyr. In other words, here's someone that doesn't fear what can happen to them physically. They want to make sure their soul is right with me. My faithful martyr. But even though their church had people that were full of the faith, they also had some that were following the false doctrine. So he writes to them and says, I've got a problem with this. You need to make your stand. And do not give in to false teachers. You remember the same writer, if you back up just a couple of pages in your Bible to 2 John. Notice what he said in 2 John. There's only one chapter there. Look at verse 10 and 11. 2 John 10 and 11. 
If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Here's a congregation of Pergamos, and, and they have within their congregation, the pictures painted here as if they're under the same roof, individuals that would give their life for Jesus Christ, but yet they would embrace those that worship false doctrine. And so from this we draw this conclusion. Christians and idolaters cannot unite in the Lord's church. Now before we leave that point, let me just quickly remind you that there's a lot of things that we can bring into our life as idols into our life other than just false doctrines that are religious. You know, we can make our physical body our idol. We can make materialism our idol. We can make fame or popularity our idol. We can make work our idol. We can make substances our idols. And we need to make sure that we realize that there is no place for the mixture of Christianity and idols within our life. Now, if you will, let's look to this fourth church, and that is in verse 18 of Thyatira. Notice says he is speaking to this church of Thyatira. We're going to skip down in verse 20. He mentions the woman Jezebel, and notice she calls herself a prophetess. Notice Jesus didn't say she is a prophetess. He says that's what she calls herself. And then what she was doing in the rest of verse 20, she was teaching and seducing my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And notice in 23, he says, I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give to each one of you according to his works. Now, was this woman's name really Jezebel? Might have been, but probably not because Jezebel out of the Old Testament had such a horrible reputation. You just can't imagine a mother and father naming their daughter Jezebel. It could be that he's calling her this because she was having the same detrimental effect on God's people under the new covenant as Jezebel was having under the old covenant. And that was pulling God's people further into idolatry. And keep in mind, when idolatry has its course, it almost always moves to sexual immorality. And so here was a New Testament Jezebel and she was going around and she was pulling individuals further into idolatry and even the sexual immorality. And what's interesting is that with this, he approaches it in 23 to say, I just want everybody to know that I'm the God who searches the minds and the hearts of mankind. Where were they going to make their stand? Why had this church in Thyatira not already taken care of Jezebel and removed her completely from their fellowship? Why was she still having an influence? Isn't it interesting that as he addresses that, he says to the whole church, I just want to remind you, I'm the God that can read your hearts and minds. I wonder if there were some off to the side that were saying, oh, we don't participate in what she does, but maybe their heart was being seduced by what she did. It reminds me of Matthew, the fifth chapter, and verse 27, that if we lust in our heart, we've already committed adultery with that individual in the heart. And so it's interesting as we have this problem going on in Thyatira that God says, I want to address the heart, and I want you to be reminded that I'm a God that not only sees your actions, but I see your heart. And so we'll conclude this one by saying God searches our heart and mind to find our holiness. And we need to ask ourselves, would he find holiness within the church of Mount Juliet? Now we're in the third chapter. The third chapter, notice the church of Sardis. And as you notice this church, notice as he says 
it, at the end of verse 1, you have a name that you are alive, yet you are dead. Probably out of all the churches here, this is the one that really, I don't know, the word maybe, uh, I was going to say surprise, it doesn't surprise, it intrigues me. This particular one intrigues me the most. That they have a reputation that they are alive, but Jesus says they're dead. I guess one reason why that intrigues me is that when I go into the area, other places, people will almost always carry on a conversation with me about the congregation of Mount Juliet. If they know the congregation of Mount Juliet, they will carry on a conversation about the reputation that is so much alive within the life of this congregation. How do you guys accomplish so much? How do you serve so much? How do you do all that you do? Isn't it, isn't it a little bit sober to think that here, this church of, of Sardis had the reputation that they were alive? But Jesus said, hey, I don't have to go by reputation. I don't have to go by perception. I know the truth. I know that you are a congregation that's spiritually dead. This morning, early service, Brett Fulford led a prayer, and he mentioned instead of just concerns of numeric growth, he prayed first and foremost, if you'll remember, for spiritual growth. Friends, I hope that we never, never lose sight of spiritual growth. Every one of us needs to ask ourselves, am I a genuine, faithful disciple of Jesus? Am I a part of a church family that we first and foremost are concerned about the spiritual welfare of everybody that is around us? The numbers, they're important because they represent souls. But if we ever start seeing people without seeing their soul and the spirituality that should be involved in that relationship, what a terrible, terrible mistake that we have made. And so with this, we'll simply make this conclusion as we look at the church of Sardis. Perception isn't reality to God. God knows our hearts. He knows us inside and out. We're not fooling God. And so what would he say about us? And then we look to the next to the last church. You see the church of Philadelphia? Church of Philadelphia, there was nothing negative that he would say about it. And by the way, that was true if you notice of the church back in Smyrna, the second church that we looked at. These are the two churches that he doesn't say anything negative. But you see down in verse 8 of the third chapter, he says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. In other words, he says, I'm giving you more opportunity and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength have kept my word and have not denied my name. Here are a group of people that apparently for everything that they've done in serving God, it has literally begun to wear on them. He's not saying anything negative about them. They literally are of little strength right now. And the Lord says, I'm going to keep the door open. You keep serving. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, where the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. Uh, my strength will be made perfect in your weakness. In other words, the Lord is saying, you just do what you can do. Keep doing it. And I'll make sure that I keep that door open and we'll keep working together and great things will be accomplished as long as we do our part. You know, when we think about doing big things for God, it's not big things compared to other people. 
It's big in the sense of what can I do to use what God has given me in God's service. And so we'll summarize this church of Philadelphia by saying, let's serve in a big way with all that we have. There's no need to compare to other churches and other people. The question is, am I serving big in all the ways that God has enabled me to serve? And then finally, look at the church of Laodicea. In the church of Laodicea, we read in 16 and 17, So then because you are lukewarm, you're neither cold nor hot, I'll vomit you out of my mouth because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. This is a church that obviously because of their prosperity, uh, they had a very expensive wool that their sheep would produce there. And they'd have these expensive clothing. And, and to somebody to say to them, you're naked, they'd say, what do you mean? We're known for our nice clothing. They even had an eye salve that they would make. And so somebody say, you're blind, and they would be, people come to us so that we can help them have sight. Oh, you people are poor. No, no, look around. We are a very wealthy community. And God says, oh, no, I'm talking spiritually. Spiritually, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. Lord, how could that be? They were complacent. They weren't cold and they weren't hot. Lord says, I'd rather you either be cold or hot because this complacency, this lukewarmness, the Lord's saying, it makes me sick at my stomach. I'll vomit you up. Why do you think cold? would be better than lukewarm. Have you ever stopped to think that a cold heart is more honest than a lukewarm heart? Somebody that's cold, they're being honest with you. I'm not living for the Lord. A lukewarm person? That's a hypocrite. You know, just Saturday, I was shopping, and Emily reminded me that I should put my card up. And so as I was putting my card up, I also caught another card and, and I hooked them together and I put them up and on the way out the door, she laughed. She said, you had to do that because you didn't want to be a hypocrite, did you? <laughs> Lukewarmness. You know what's right? Do you do what's right? When nobody's looking, do you do what's right? Lord says cold people are more honest than lukewarm people. They really are not trying to lie to anybody. They're probably easier to convert. It's hard to convert somebody that's comfortable and complacent in their sins. And also, cold people, they don't hurt the church like lukewarm people do. How many times have all of us heard someone say, you mean so-and-so goes to church up there? (laughs) I've worked with them for years. I tell you, I won't be going there. Nobody says that about somebody that doesn't darken the doors. They understand that the life they're living, they're not making some kind of hypocritical claim. The Lord says, and we'll conclude with this summary, don't make God sick. Don't be like the church of Laodicea tonight. What do you think? What do you think the Lord would say about the Mount Juliet congregation that He appreciates? What do you think He'd say about the congregation that He would wish that we would change immediately. We need to think about that. We need to pray about that. But as we extend this song of invitation, I want to ask you this. What would God say about you individually? Would God right now say, you're saved? 
Or would he say you're not? Wouldn't tonight be a wonderful time to make your life right with God? If you've never been baptized into Christ, wouldn't tonight be the time to do that? If you have been baptized into Christ and you've lost the way, wouldn't tonight be a wonderful time to come back? Friends, perception is not reality to God. God knows. He reads the hearts and minds of man. Tonight, are you comfortable with what God is reading in your life? If we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we sing.